0: Take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 5 as we continue our study through this first book of the Bible. Quick review as you're finding Genesis 5 and Genesis chapter 1, we had the creation of the heavens and the earth, the general story of that. In chapter 2, Moses, the writer, drills down on the creation of man and woman where God put them in a garden, gave them everything they could possibly want, everything they could need, made man for the woman and the woman for the man, and instituted the marriage right there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and together they will become one flesh. God put them in a garden, they had everything they could want, they had everything they could possibly need. And amidst of the great blessing, God gave them one commandment. And by the way, we always remember that every commandment is in the context of blessing. A commandment says, you don't have to do this. I don't want you to do this. This is stepping outside of my will. You don't need to do this. And God gave the one command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve did. And God said, as soon as you do, you'll surely die, and, and death then enters into the human race. We saw that in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. Cain and Abel, the first two sons of Adam and Eve, they had an issue, and Cain, in a fit of rage, killed his brother Abel. And so we see that Adam and Eve lost two sons that day because Cain and his unrepentance was, was put out of the presence of God. We saw that. Last time, Today we want to look at chapter 5, which is really a genealogy of the line of Seth, the son that was given after Abel had been murdered. And in this genealogy, a lot of times when we see a genealogy in Scripture, we kind of, at least I do, we kind of read it pretty quickly, right? Kind of move through it. Well, here's a genealogy that is rich with some information we need to know as we go through the rest of Genesis. By the way, I hope you're seeing as we go through the study, and you'll see some more today, you can't understand the New Testament until you have an understanding of the Old Testament. And so many things happen right here in the book of Genesis. So in chapter 5, we're going to see five important things and then a couple other things in the first eight verses of chapter 6. So let's start working our way through this passage. The first words we see is this is the book of the generations of Adam. And I just want to note here that the literary structure, as we've seen of Genesis, is divided into 10 sections, all beginning with this word, generations or account. It's the Hebrew word So, here we are in the second literary part of Genesis. Here is the generations of Adam. There's something, other other thing that's very important in this this, uh, passage. We have, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Remember, it's Moses who wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We call that the Pentateuch. And Moses wrote the Pentateuch. In about 1440 B.C., after the children of Israel had left slavery, been delivered from slavery out of Egypt, Moses is now with them, and they're wandering in the desert, and Moses has the time to write these five books. But notice here that not only does he have direct inspiration from God, he, otherwise he wouldn't have known the creation story, not only does he have the oral tradition passed down, But here we see in chapter 5, verse 1, there's a book. There's a book that has been written. The names have been given. The genealogy has been given. It's something that they cared for. It's something they valued. And here we see Moses used written sources to compose the book of Genesis along with direct revelation along with oral tradition, I think that's fascinating that the patriarchs would care so much about this genealogy that they wrote it down and they passed it from Abraham to Isaac all the way down so that you still have it in the days of Moses. That's pretty fascinating. The source is handed down to the patriarchs. The second thing we see in chapter 5 is in this fallen world, man continues in the image of of God, when God created, verse uh, the end of verse 1, when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God, male and female, He created them and blessed them, and He named them man when He created them. So here we're reminded, like we were reminded in the creation story, that man is made in the likeness of of God. We are made in the image of God. And remember, we, we said that the image means we have a spiritual understanding. Every person is made with a spiritual understanding. There's something that we realize in our hearts. or something in our hearts we realize that we are not God, and there is a God. There is a great creator out there, the God-shaped void that we talk about, a spiritual understanding, image of God. We also have a conscience, We know the difference between right and wrong. Where does that come from? We're made in the image of God. We also have these what's called communicable attributes. So for instance, God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Are we all-powerful? Absolutely not, but man, I think we all agree, is pretty powerful. We are not omniscient. God is. God knows everything there is to know about everything there is to know. We're not omniscient, but man can learn. And, and we have the capacity of knowledge. God is eternal. Never been a time when he wasn't. Never will be a time when he isn't. We're not eternal. We have a beginning. But he made us eternal beings. So that we are going to live forever. Either with him or apart from him. God is a creator. He spoke the world into existence. He formed man out of the dust of the ground. We certainly don't do that. But God has given us the capacity for man and woman to come together. And bring with in partnering with God. Bring life into the world. God is all-loving. Love, his love is pure. His love is unconditional. Ours is not, but we have the capacity to love. And so we see here, God reminds us, now sin is entering into the world, that man still is made in the image of God. And not only is man first made in the image of God, but that image is passed down. Look at the end of the verse. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, After his image. What's Moses telling us there? Not only was Adam made in the image of God, but as Adam fathered a son, that son is also made in the image of God. So in the midst of sin, in the midst of sin permeating people and permeating the world, we still today are made in the image of God. That's why we are so adamant about life and the protection of life from from conception to the very end, because we are made in the image of God. We partner with God in this beautiful creation called life. And God is the one who puts us here in his image. We also see in this chapter five that the gracious gift of life continues. You remember in chapter four, verse one, when uh, Eve had Cain she said I have, I have gotten a man with the help of God. You remember that? We talked about that? I have gotten a man with the help of God. So here Eve said God partnered with me in bringing life into the world and now this gracious gift continues. I won't go through all these but there are ten panels of names. There's the, there's the person and then how old they were when they fathered a son, and then how much longer they lived, and then they had sons and daughters, and then when they died. And so life continues on. And, and we read these so quickly, don't we? But these are real people going through real stuff, raising their kids. They're involved in, in, in a culture of sin, trying to raise their kids in the right way. And death comes and different things come. But here they are, one after another generation after generation. It's one generation tells another generation that God is God and he's a God to be served. There's another thing that Moses drills down hard in this chapter and uh, it started in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and God said when you sin surely you're going to die. Death is going to enter the world. And we see in Romans or in Genesis chapter 5, over and over, in the middle of sin, we're just getting started with the human race. Look at verse 5. Thus, all the days of Adam that, that Adam lived were 930 years, so people lived a long time before the flood. And he what? Adam died. Physically died. Now, death has three things to it, physical separation from our body, a spiritual separation from God, and an eternal separation if we don't know Christ. But here's the physical separation, Adam died. And then verse 8, Seth died. And then verse 11, and he died, and 14, and he died, and 17, and he died, and 20, and he died. You catch the pattern here? 27, and he died, 31, and he died. Moses is saying that sin has a penalty, and it's death. Every time you walk away from a grave, every time you read about a tragedy on your iPhone, every time you look at an obituary, every time you visit a funeral home, we are reminded that the wages of sin is death. It's not the way it was supposed to be. But man made a decision in the garden. And that sin has been passed on to us. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Sin entered the world through one man. And then death made its way through all men because all sin. We don't sin because we don't become a sinner. Because one day we sin. We sin because we were born sinners. And death is the final judgment on our sin. One more thing in chapter 5. Even in this, this culture of sin and this culture of, of death, there is always hope. Right? Just like today. There's always hope. Man continued to live with this hope. Look at verse 22. Enoch Walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, Enoch walked with God. Moses only used that description of one other person. There are many who walked with God in the Old Testament. That's only used of one other person, and that's going to be Noah in chapter 6. He walked with God. Wouldn't you love for that to be on your tombstone? She walked with God. He walked with God. Enoch did that. In this generation of sin, in this generation of death, here here is hope. Enoch walked with God. You know, sometimes in, in church, we use terms all the time, and we really don't stop to think about what they mean. So what does it mean to walk? with God, to walk with God, I have uh, put in your notes uh, a description from a, a commentator, I'm not going to read all of this, but I just want to read the first part of it, to walk with God, don't you want this to describe your life as if you're a believer, Enoch walked with God because he was God's friend and he liked God's company because he was going in the same direction as God and had no desire for anything but what lay in God's path. We walk with God when he is in our thoughts, not because we are consciously not because we consciously think of him at all times, but because he is naturally suggested to us by all we think of and when any person or plan or idea has become important to us no matter what we think of, our thought is always found recurring to that favorite object. So with the godly men and women, everything has a connection with God and must be ruled by that connection. Would you say that characterizes your life? Everything I do has a connection with God and is ruled by that connection. See, I'm not only a, a, just a, a Christian in name, I love Jesus Christ. I want to be his friend. I want to walk with him. I want him to impact every aspect of my life. Does that happen with us? Does it happen as men and women? Does God influence every aspect of our parenting? Do we make parenting decisions based on what other people are doing or what God wants us to do? I was standing at Brewster's one time and this guy came up and he had kids, I hope he's not here today. He may be. But I'm always dangerous, what I'm going to do now. But he's talking, and uh, he was just bringing his kids from a soccer practice, and it was about an hour from here. And uh, this guy was saying, man, you guys are really busy. And he said, yeah, when other parents stop doing this, then I'll stop doing it. But i got to do this to keep up with the other kids. And I thought, man, what a way to parent. Are are we really, is is our parenting really based on what other parents do? Or is our parenting based on what God would want us to do? And I'm not saying anything's wrong with soccer. And I'm not saying anything's wrong with traveling an hour to go practice soccer. I'm just saying that the reason for doing it cannot be because other people do it. Walking with God is different. What's in God's path? That's where we want to walk. Now something happens to Enoch that only happens to one other person in Scripture. It happened to Elijah In 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, check this out, Uh, verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch and Elijah are the only two people in Scripture we know who did not die. For some reason, God just transported Enoch right to heaven. Here's what I think. Here we are in the midst of, and he died, and he died, and he died. Enoch's son dies as well. And certainly there were godly individuals in that line who died, and they went to heaven after they died, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But here Moses is telling us, and God is telling us by the transporting Enoch, that this is the way it's supposed to be. I'm going to take you to heaven. Sometimes you're going to go through death, I took Enoch right to heaven. But you're going to be with me if you follow me. If you walk with God, you're going to be with me in heaven. What a beautiful promise we have right in the middle of the sin, right in the middle of this culture, right in the middle of death. God says, here's the hope. You know, live with me forever if you walk with me. There's another kind of note of hope in this. By the way, Hebrews chapter 11, 5 and 6 said this, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That passage familiar with many is drawn right out of the context of Enoch in the Old Testament. He was in that hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Okay, one more example of hope here. Look at verse 28. When Lamech had lived for 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his son Noah. Here's that literary bridge that we're getting ready to go to the flood. And he said, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed... This one shall bring us what? Relief. Well, that's what everyone's looking for, isn't it? Relief. And Lamech is realizing that sin, the curse on the ground, is there. And there's toil and there's sweat because of it. But someone is going to bring relief. And he thinks it's going to be his son, Noah. We'll talk more about that next time. After chapter 5, we go into chapter 6, and here, after the genealogy, the the mood kind of changes. We're getting ready for the flood and why the flood came. Moses is explaining to the people why the flood came, and here we see in Genesis chapter 6 how sin just permeates the world. Genesis 6, the first eight verses are some of the most difficult to translate, in um, Genesis as well. So we'll work our way uh, through this. We don't want to get bogged down, but there are some important things to look at. The first thing we see in verses 1 through 4 is human wickedness spread. It spreads. By the way, you hear people saying, Man, it is really bad. Day. Look at everything going on. It has never been this bad, it's always been this bad. It wasn't worse in the Old Testament, and now it's better today. It's not really bad today, and it was better back then. The good old days don't exist when it comes to the permeation of sin. It has always been this bad. And we see it in Genesis 6. When men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. The daughters of men probably were the daughters through the line of Cain. The sons of God <clears throat> is a debated who these sons of God are. Sons of God, that term is used in only in Job. And in Job 1 and 2 and 38... It's used of fallen angels. And so there are many who believe that this verse is saying that fallen angels during this time came down to earth. And they took uh, any woman they wanted. Daughters of men were attractive. And they had children uh, by these women. Now, while the support of that is the same use of the word in Job refers to fallen angels, the challenge to that is that there is nowhere in Scripture that talks about angels having children by humans. In fact, Jesus says that in in heaven you'll be like the angels, neither uh, marrying or giving in marriage, right? So that's a flaw to that traditional interpretation, and there are many who hold to that. Another interpretation is these are the descendants of Seth. So you have the daughters of Cain, and you have the descendants of Seth, and they come in and they continue this uh, permeation of sin into the world. Again, the challenge with that is we've just seen the descendants of Seth. To start naming them sons of God it would, would be a bit of a stretch. The third traditional interpretation of this is that they are human rulers or tyrants. They were human kings and tyrants that lived uh, during that day. And that may well uh, be the case. I I actually take a hybrid view that uh, comes from a guy named Alan Ross. Uh, He was a professor of mine at Dallas Seminary, and he also has written a great uh, commentary uh, on Genesis called Creation and Blessing. And he holds that these sons of God were tyrants, were rulers who were under the, under the influence or possessed by demons. So you have to have something going on with fallen angels. But in order for them to have children, they got to be men. And so here, Ross believes, and I would agree with this one, that these tyrants, just like in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13 and Daniel 10, 20, when it shows that the kings of the earth were being influenced by by princes and powerful spirits ruling behind them, these tyrants of the day were demon-possessed, and they were taking women, anyone they wanted, having sex with women. They were into fertility and fame and power, and this could have well been the beginning of harems in the Old Testament. Look at verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now the question is, is, are the Nephilim contemporaries of these sons of God Or are they the children of these sons of God? It seems to be that they are simply contemporaries of the sons of God. The name Nephilim means giants. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's how it's translated, these giants. We only see the Nephilim one other time in the Old Testament. It's in Numbers 13. When the spies go into the land of Israel and they say, man, we're not, we can't take that land. There are giants in the land. That's land. That's the word Nephilim. Can't be these guys because they're going to be killed by the flood. So it's got to be a better thing. way to take it, I think, is giants. So here we have giants, men of renown in the world. And, and I think it's interesting that, that Moses says this. Look at the end. These were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Some things never change, do they? Here in Genesis chapter 6 people are celebrating giants men of renown all cultures do that don't they ours does our culture celebrates people of renown right our culture celebrates men and women who have tremendous athletic skill musical ability beautiful appearance acting capability, regardless of their morality, regardless of how they live. Fill stadiums to watch men of renown. Wear jerseys on your back. Believers of these men of renown, some of them have demonstrated an absolute base instinct of morality. And yet we still follow today, right? Men of renown, regardless of morality. Some things never change. That was a description of the permeation of sin here. And if we open our eyes and look up, parents, who who are you celebrating in your life? And who do you allow your children to celebrate? Are they men of renown because they can do great athletic feats? Women of renown because of great athletic feats or, or, or something you're into? Or are they those who demonstrate that they walk with God? We get in trouble when our heroes are immoral. Genesis 6 they did, and we're no different. Look at Genesis 3. Here's another challenging verse. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever or contend with man forever or remain in man forever. For he is of flesh, his days shall be 120 years. When you first read it, it sounds like these guys lived a long time before the flood, and now they're only going to live 120 years. problem with that is there are some people after this, Abraham being one, who lived more than 120 years. So what seems to be the case is God here is just saying, My spirit's not going to remain or abide or contend in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120. There's going to be a period of grace before destruction comes. His days shall be 120 years. uh, uh, An example of a period of grace before the flood comes. Well, finally, God says at the end of... in in verse 5, that enough is enough. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Just look at that verse again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was what? Was great. And that not some, but every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. If you take notes in your Bible, jot down this theological term, total depravity, by Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. That verse describes total depravity. There is nothing in There's not a little good in the heart of man. There's not an ounce of good in the heart of man. Man is wicked. Every intention is wicked. His heart is wicked. And he does evil continually. Total depravity. All have sinned. And falls short. There is not verse tells us as others do in scripture, like Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful above all things; it's desperately wicked. Who can understand it? That verse right there in Genesis chapter six verse five tells us there's nothing we can do to gain a standing before God. Our heart's desperately wicked. Our heart has evil intentions from the very beginning. Total depravity. We're going to need a savior. God's going to send us one. Look at verse 6. This gets a little complicated again. And so, the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I'm going to blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. So we see there that the flood is coming. We're going to talk about that next time. But the question we would ask in that passage, did God make a mistake? Is God saying, I made a mistake when I created man? Let's think about that. First of all, we know that God is sovereign in control of all things. He is all-knowing. Nothing is going to take him by surprise. He has one eternal thought. So God was not surprised that man had sinned. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that sin entered the world. And in Genesis 3, remember we talked about that? God gave man and woman a responsibility. He didn't create them as robots. He doesn't create us as robots. They could follow him or not. They chose not to. God says, because man has continually decided against me, I am sorry that I made him. I am grieved to my heart. And what that is there, we saw this a few times ago, anthropomorphism, explaining God in human terms. We wouldn't know God's rationale for the flood unless... Moses explains God in human terms. And so we can think about this great God who creates us, who's not taken by surprise, but gives man responsibility along with his sovereignty. These two streams of truth that continually run through Scripture. God is sovereign and man is responsible. And here, man, in his continuation of sin... Comes to the point where God says, in our terminology, so we can understand it, I am grieved. Boy, can can we grieve God? Ephesians chapter 4 says we can. Remember? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Put away all these things from this whole list of sins. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So God wants us to understand in human terms that we can make choices against him that grieves him. And the consequences of these were significant. Flood's going to come. He says, I'm going to start over. We'll see that next time. Just as Enoch walked with God, there's one other guy who's walking with God here. Look at the end of verse 8. Here's where we'll stop. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So here we have in chapter 5, in the first eight verses of chapter 6, the days of Noah, where wickedness ruled, and they're very instructive for us. Some in that day were walking with God, right? Enoch. Others, Enoch is pointed out. Some were living by faith. Noah, there were others. Noah is pointed out. Some were living in open rebellion against God. And we see that in these sons of God. And how sin is permeating the earth. Many were living in the sin. These are the days of Noah. And the point that Moses is making is that people were living and going about their business. They were marrying. They were giving away their daughters. And, and marriage was taking place. And children were taking place. And eating was going on. And, and they, were, they were following these men of renown. And then what happened right after that? When they weren't even expecting it, flood came. Wiped them out. Turn over to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to see next time that God promised He will not destroy the earth again by flood. We'll talk about the covenant that He made. But there will come a time of judgment again and of destruction again, not by flood, but by fire. Look at Matthew 24, verse 36. Jesus is talking about the second coming. He's talking about the end of time. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Look at verse 37. For as were the days of who? Jesus is referring to this passage we just looked at today. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were just going through their normal life. They were doing their thing. They were doing their family thing. They were doing their job thing. Just going through life. And and God was kind of down the list a bit, if on the list at all. Verse 39, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. It was too late. And Jesus says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's going to be just like the days of Noah. People weren't expecting it. People didn't believe it. People were caught up in daily life. They didn't have that thought. And Jesus said the second coming is going to be just exactly the like that two men will be in the field verse 41 will be taken one left two women grinding at the mill: one taken one left and therefore jesus says therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your lord is coming you don't know on what day your lord is coming question I want to leave you today <clears throat> is this. You don't know what day your Lord is coming. Maybe through the second coming. And we kind of think, oh, you know what? We've heard about that so much. Just like in the days of Noah. It ain't going to happen. Jesus said the same mindset was in Genesis 5 and 6. And then it was too late. Where the coming of the Lord could be, your death, But one way or another, when the genealogy is written out, by the end of your name is going to be what? And she died. And he died. And my question to you today, are you ready for that? Do you know, not hope, not maybe, Not I think, but do you know with certainty that if Christ would come right now or if you would die right now, you would spend eternity with God because you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with the living God. Do you know that for certain? And my plea with you is not to leave today until you know that, until you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with the living God. You're playing roulette if you walk out of here not knowing that. Because you don't know what's going to happen. I just know this. I don't know when it's going to be. And he died. Or Christ is coming back. you got to know for certain that you've trusted in Jesus Christ as the only way to have a relationship with the living God. Now, one other thing. Jude, in the New Testament, talks more about Enoch. Enoch not only walked with God, but he talked about God. He didn't walk silently. And there are a lot of believers today who walk around silently, right? Jude, chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Jude, verses 14 and 15, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and ungodliness so that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things, the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What did Enoch do besides walk with God? He shared the message with others. He warned them of what was coming. If we knew that danger was coming, wouldn't we want to warn those we love? Wouldn't we want to warn friends and neighbors? And we know that Jesus said just as it was in Genesis 5 and 6, so it is now. Don't go to sleep. As believers, as those who walk with God, why are we so hesitant to tell others about Jesus Christ? Why will we talk about the men of renown, the Steelers and the Pirates and the Penguins all day long? But we don't want to talk about Jesus. As those who walk with God, Enoch was a man who walked with God. And he warned others, hey, time's coming. He did it in an appropriate way. You can do that in a loving way. You can do that in a caring way. But can't be silent.